Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to the Brian Danesberg Podcast, Christian Living in a Complicated World. I'm your host, Brian Danesberg, lead pastor of Alliance Bible Church located in beautiful southeast Wisconsin. Today we're going to continue our um, our two-part series here on feelings, justice, and cancel culture. And uh, I want to recap what we looked at last time. Um, last time we looked at three cultural artifacts, three cultural artifacts that um, are, are kind of serve as illustrations or illustrative of where we are at as a, a culture. And uh, the three we looked at were this, this idea of job satisfaction. If you were to ask your grandfather, working in the 1950s, grandpa, do you have job satisfaction? If he understood the question, he would probably think of it in terms of, well, I got food on the table, I got a roof over the head. Yeah, I've got job satisfaction. Today, we answer that question very differently. There, it, it, there's an emotive um, there's an emotive response to that question. Do you have job satisfaction? Well, I like what I do. I like the people I work with. Um, the, the skills I have, I'm using. There's, there's an emotional connectivity to um, how we think about job satisfaction. That's different than it was in the 1950s. Um, what is this showing us? Well, they're, they're, to an extent, the issue of feeling and, and desires and tastes and preferences has become central in today's culture. And it's gotten to the point where um, we're encouraged to pursue satisfaction of those desires, of those tastes, of, their, of those preferences. The other artifact that we looked at was um, technological development. It used to be the world was an objectively authoritative place that one needed to submit to and conform to. Think about the farmer. I don't know how far back you have to go, but eventually you get to the point where the farmer doesn't have water at the snap of a finger, has very little knowledge of soil science, certainly no crop genetics. It was in a, the world was an objectively authoritative place that they, that people learned to submit to and conform to. Today, with the advancement of technology, the world has become less authoritative. The natural order of things has become a less authoritative place. Now it contains much more of the raw materials needed to satisfy one's personal desires, tastes, and preferences. The third artifact we looked at was was this this imagery from Christopher Latch um, in his book Culture of Narcissism, where he talks about the mirror. In effect, we are all little gods now, and um, as we seek to pursue our desires in this world, if we come across anyone or anything that's an encumbrance to the satisfaction of those desires, that becomes an act of of heresy of treason. And it's met with a swift judgment. Um, We've become little gods who demand recognition. And when people don't give it, they're to be treated as apostates. They're canceled. Now, what term do we give to this phenomenon taking place? Different thinkers have created their own terms. And by the way, I, I, I am not the one who is making these observations. There are numerous thinkers. Alistair McIntyre, uh, Chris Latch, who I mentioned, 
Charles Taylor, um, Philip Reif. These are all thinkers who are, are making the same observations. They come up with different labels to describe it, but they're all making the same observations. What I'm going to do is I'm going to use Charles Taylor's term, expressive individualism, to refer to this thing that I've just described, the issue of feeling. There's no external authority. There's a demand to be recognized. Uh, I'm going to use expressive individualism, and I'm going to offer five outcomes of expressive individualism, and I'm going to offer a biblical corrective to each one. Okay, Five outcomes of expressive individualism and a, um, a biblical corrective to each one. Okay. Outcome number one, expressive individualism grants too much authority to personal desires. The central creed of expressive individualism is that your desires, your tastes, your preferences, your feelings, your intuitions are good. And you have a right to use the world around you to satisfy them and to express them. So the self becomes God. Your personal desires have nearly unlimited authority. This is, this is an outcome of it. It kind of describes the, the phenomenon of it. Now, what, how do we think about that biblically? Well, it, it no longer dawns on us that in all of our feeling, in all of our desiring, in all of our preferences, there might be a problem with what we feel, desire, and prefer. The modern expressive individualist turns inward and sees a beauty. But as many addicts will tell you, some of the strongest desires you can have can be among the deadliest desires you can have. Strong desires, tastes, and preferences do not automatically mean they are good and in need of satisfaction and expression. Sometimes they are evil and in need of transformation. The Bible pulls no punches here. Uh, it describes in, in great detail over and over again, just how corrupt human beings are. The Apostle Paul writing, maybe the most extended treatise on this in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths, are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So in contrast to expressive individualism, a genuine Christian knows that inwardly he or she is sinful and therefore needs to repent and turn to God. The genuine Christian is going to look inside, yes, is going to identify desires, tastes, preferences, feelings, intuitions, but is going to be suspicious of them because we are deeply, deeply flawed creatures. So the first outcome of expressive individualism is it simply grants too much authority to personal desires. The second outcome, expressive individualism redefines oppression and justice. Expressive individualism redefines oppression and justice. Justice and oppression used to be more material and social in nature. What do I mean by that? Well, to, to return to my grandfather, whom I mentioned earlier, for him, an example of oppression would be not being paid a fair day's wage for an honest day's work. 
for today's psychological self, oppression is a far broader concept. In the world of expressive individualism, personal desires, tastes, preferences, and feelings are ultimate. Satisfying those has become a right. Thus, anyone or anything that is a hindrance to one's psychological self-fulfillment is committing an injustice. For me, not to be able to fulfill my desires is an experience of oppression. A a significant part of, of personal satisfaction today is not having more money, but it's having the verbal affirmation of other people. This is what Latch was talking about. So, as an example of this, if someone is gay, and I asked this in the last episode, why is it no longer good enough that they can acquire an education, a career, a home, a car, vacations, every other comfort and convenience that life affords, Why does that no longer suffice? Why must the gay person's neighbors verbally affirm the goodness of their gay identity? Why? Well, justice is now an issue of happiness. If I'm unhappy, injustice or oppression is to blame. And withholding praise from someone is an act of oppression. So injury is now conceptualized in psychological terms. The clearest example of this is is the culture of disinvitation that um, has, you know, has kind of blossomed um, over the the recent years. Um, there was an event that was supposed to take place on Williams College campus, and they disinvited the speaker. And the campus newspaper editorialized that the speaker's mere presence on campus would have caused students emotional injury. This is not talking about students who would have attended the event. They're talking about students who would not have attended the event, but the mere presence of the speaker would cause, quote unquote, emotional injury. Laura Kipnis, who teaches at Northwestern University in the Chicagoland area, writes, emotional discomfort is now regarded as equivalent to material injury, and all injuries have to be remediated. So this is why speech codes have become so important. Uh, the self is divinized, okay? This, we're all gods now, and all gods demand or are worthy of worship. The failure to use appropriate language in telling another person they are the fairest of all is, an, is injustice. And this makes sense of the phrase that we often heard over the past year, couple years, silence is violence. Violence has been redefined. It has been psychologized, and it's now linguistic in nature. So not to say something is to perpetuate the violence through the absence of the proper use of linguistics. So we have an ecosystem of cancel culture here. Whatever words or statements make me feel bad need to be canceled. Why? Well, in the world of expressive individualism, violence is no longer physical. It's also linguistic. In a world where the self is divinized, speech is the mode of worship or withholding worship. So, what is our biblical corrective to this? <laughs> Where would one even start to offer a biblical corrective to this? Um, well, we can say first that human beings are not gods. To treat another human being as God is idolatry. And nothing in the Bible arouses the anger of God more than idolatry. Human beings are made from the dust of the earth and to dust we shall return. That ought to humble us. The Bible teaches that every breath a human breathes was provided by God. We do not have life in ourselves. The only reason you woke up this morning is because God willed you to and sustained you to do so. 
We are finite, dependent, needy creatures who are roundly undeserving of worship. So biblical corrective, to be blunt, is we simply need to be put in our place. Another corrective, though, here is to fix our notion of justice. It's, it's become very detached from the Bible. In the Bible, the word justice occurs only once before God makes a covenant with Israel. In the making of the covenant with Moses, the law of Moses, uh, the mention of justice occurs more frequently. So that it's the establishment of that covenant, the law of Moses, where the word justice and its related term righteousness really takes off. And of course, the core of the law of Moses is something we all know well, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are actually the best place to start looking at the concept of justice. The first four commandments have nothing to do with how one human being treats another. The first four only have to do with how human beings are supposed to treat God. So first and foremost, justice is about giving God the proper worship, devotion, and obedience he alone deserves. So if people want to talk about justice uh, today, that's great. But the very first conversation about justice we ought to be having is whether or not human beings are giving God his due. If they aren't, we are guilty of the greatest injustice that exists today. Only after that's established can we talk about justice for human beings. Now, what does justice for human beings look like? Well, the rest of the Ten Commandments are a great place to start. Honor your father and mother, children. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. And of course, Jesus ratchets that up to be careful with your anger. Do not commit adultery. And Jesus ratchets that up to watch your thought life. Lust is a real danger and a sin. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. That is, tell the truth about your neighbor. Don't tell lies. Do not covet your, covet your neighbor's stuff. Envy. This is the essence of justice. This is the essence of justice. And it, uh, it's, it departs from how we have been talking about it within mainstream culture today. Outcome number three, expressive individualism leads to real abuse of institutions. Expressive individualism leads to real abuse of institutions. So in the world of expressive individualism, the primary question that is asked is, will this make me happy? Or how can this make me happy? On the decision of whether or not to get married, the question is, will this make me happy? And if marriage gets difficult, the primary impulse operating within us is, if my marriage is no longer serving my psychological well-being, why stay in it? So the rise of irreconcilable differences as grounds for divorce is timed extremely well with the rise of expressive individualism. On the decision whether or not to have children, the rationale remains the same. Will this contribute to my psychological well-being? Think from a civics point of view. Apply this to the, to the U.S. Constitution. If the Constitution is no longer serving my psychological well-being, if it conflicts with my desires, tastes, and preferences, it ought to be canceled or at least amended to accommodate my desires, tastes, and preferences. Or if that statue in such and such a city causes me any internal angst, it should be removed. In the world of expressive individualism, external institutions and authorities can very easily become hindrances to my internal well-being. How about the church? It's not immune. People look to attend a church that will serve their inner therapeutic purposes. If it satisfies my taste, then I'll make it my church home. If not, I'll keep looking. 
And of course, once you've decided on a church, whether or not you come and worship on some particular Sunday morning is also a product of expressive individualism. If I wake up that morning and believe going to a church will, going to church will attend to my inner well-being, I'll go. If not, I'll stay home. The self is divinized. We are little gods. In the world around us, both people and things exist to serve our pursuit of self-fulfillment. So expressive individualism leads to the abuse of institutions. Institutions should be penalized in both overt and discreet ways if they're hindrances to my psychological well-being. Institutions should be avoided or ignored if they're not contributing to the satisfaction of my emotional needs. So what is a biblical corrective to this? Well, we certainly need a retrieval of a theology of duty, a theology of obedience. Christian, you have duties to perform whether you like it or not. How did Jesus say we express our love for him? If you love me, you will obey my commands through obedience. Obedience tells the true story of our love for Christ, not our feelings. Expressive individualism has created a culture where we're, we're afraid to make demands of people. And we shouldn't be afraid. <laughs> we should not be afraid to make demands of people. We should not be afraid to make statements like, if you're a member of this church, you need to be giving generously and serve faithfully in a ministry. If you're not going to do these things, it's time to press on and find a church where you can do those things. We have duties to perform. We have commitments to make good on. We, we cannot be afraid to issue these challenges. We have become too sensitive in dancing around people's personal preferences. We're, we're too afraid to say things that will make people feel uncomfortable because the self has become God. And by the way, when we don't speak truth in love to people, we're only encouraging more self-divinization. Because the modern church has been afraid to make people feel uncomfortable by withholding truth, we have been agents in support of more self-divinization. Speak the truth in love. Call people to obedience. Call them to commitment. Outcome number four, expressive individualism fuels outrage culture. I'm sure you've noticed that over the past couple of years, it seems like our society has become angrier than ever before. Outrage is everywhere. Why? Well, let me throw out two reasons. Um, expressive individualism encourages us to express whatever we're feeling. It's now a cultural value, a cultural ideal. Everyone has a license to let it rip. To stuff it, or better, exercise self-control, is the essence of inauthenticity. To be inauthentic is the stuff oppression is made of. But the other reason is a little more substantive. When the self becomes God, okay, when the self becomes God, then the slightest provocation becomes grounds for swift judgment on those I deem to be offenders. With expressive individualism, the self becomes God. When the self is God, the self is now entitled to all things that God is typically entitled to. And you don't have to let too many hours in the day go by before life does what it does and removes something the God of self believes he's entitled to. And the result? Anger. So pride is, is the root of all anger, and it doesn't get any more prideful than expressive individualism. So what is our biblical corrective? Well, you can hardly do better than what Richard Baxter said way back in the 1600s. He wrote this. He said, a proud person considers things as heinous or intolerable that are said or done against him. He that thinks lowly of himself sees things done or said against him as of little significance. 
He that magnifies himself sees offenses against him also magnified. That is our problem. We have so magnified ourselves. We're gods now. That offenses against us are also magnified. This is why, by the way, in my preaching at times, you'll hear me say the secret to a happy life is faith and humility. If you trust God is in control and you trust he is good, and you don't walk around with a mindset that says all of life is supposed to be my birthday party, you'll be the happiest you can be this side of heaven. The secret to a happy life is faith and humility. Trusting God and living life in a state of humility will make you the happiest person on the planet. Outcome number five, last one. Expressive individualism is everywhere, including the church. Expressive individualism is not a problem with some people, but not me. It, it, that's not the issue. It's not like it's, it, it's their problem over there. It's not my problem over here. No, it's a problem we all have. It's the Kool-Aid we've been drinking since we came into this world. And its influence is unavoidable. In, in a way, we've been discipled as expressive individualists. One way to think about this is just as an anecdote is noting the proliferation of options in affluent society. And by the way, I think affluence is a key contributor to this whole thing, but that might have to be another talk sometime. Think about the proliferation of options. Options are both a reflection of our expressive individualism and a shaper of it. There are few desires or preferences that can't be met. Uh, there's an app for everything. That's the world we live in. And it has a discipleship effect. As an example of this, the highest rated TV show in the 1950s was I Love Lucy. It earned a 67.3 Nielsen rating at its height in 1953, which means of the TV sets on at night, 67% of them were dialed into I Love Lucy. By contrast, the highest rated program for the last decade, Sunday Night Football, maxed out at 14.8. Now, are fewer people watching TV? No, more people are watching TV. There are just hundreds of other options. Why? Because the expressive individualist consumer demands to have their preferences met. And let's be honest, we're not any different. And the proliferation of options only serves as fertilizer on the garden of expressive individualism. So what is the corrective? What's the biblical corrective to this? Um, a couple of things. The Bible isn't really interested in us expressing ourselves to the world and each other. God's not really interested in that. God is more interested in us being impressed with his self-expression. The Bible confronts a me-first way of life with a God-first world. The world you live in is God-first. Now, I think the greenhouse for self-expression is social media. And more and more scholars and thinkers are noting the exponential growth and depression and suicide rates among those whose consumption of social media is higher in proportion to the general populace. And this growth has striking overlap with the proliferation of social media. Social media is not causing this. It's the greenhouse in which this phenomenon is taking place. So what is the root cause of skyrocketing mental health crises? You guessed it, expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is the God of self. When we are preoccupied with personal feelings, desires, tastes, and preferences, 
and we pursue satisfaction of those and expression of those, we are worshiping the God of self, and it only leads to decreational destruction. Certainly, God made us to be beholders of great wonder and beauty and magnificence. He did. In fact, he made us to find profound contentment in beholding great wonder and beauty and magnificence. But when we make the self the object of this wonder, we are trying to milk an almond. There isn't much that's going to come from that. It's an empty way of life. This is where the church in the past 30 years, in my opinion, has failed miserably. What did the seeker-sensitive movement do? It asked people for their feelings, desires, preferences, and tastes, and then sought to create a church menu that resonated with those. Expressive individualism was already running rampant in the culture, and the church poured gasoline on that fire. It really should have run in the opposite direction. It should have given people a steady diet of preaching rich in theology, preaching that puts the overwhelming brilliance of God's glory on display. What happened here is that people needed more looks at God. And instead, we preach sermons that cause them to give more looks inside themselves. Hindsight's twenty twenty, but we messed up here. See, what you need more than anything else is to see God. If there's one antidote to expressive individualism and all the deleterious effects it has on us, it's that. We need preaching and teaching that helps people see God as he really is. There it is. Five outcomes of expressive individualism and biblical correctives for each one. I'll leave you with this from Psalm 34. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Thanks for tuning in to the Brian Danger Podcast, and we'll see you next time.